Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today on the podcast, we've got Greg Sevitz. Uh, Greg is the co-founder of an awesome company called Magic Spoon, and they are making a new kind of cereal, and he's going to tell you all about it. Previously, he was a co-founder of an awesome company called XO, which made cricket products. And uh, yeah, we'll dive into all of that, but today's my first day meeting Greg, so we're going we're gonna to learn about his story and explore how he sees the future, how he thinks about brands and how he thinks about the future of food and nutrition. So welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So what is Magic Spoon? Magic Spoon is a modern cereal brand. We're reinventing all the classic breakfast cereals. So all of the brands that probably we both grew up with and know and love, but reformulated, rethought for a modern consumer. So instead of a bunch of sugar and corn, it's uh, high in protein, low carb. We use a new type of sugar called allulose, which basically tastes and functions just like sugar, but has only 10% of the calories and doesn't get processed like sugar in your body. And so that and a few other ingredients has really allowed us to get pretty close to the taste of a classic cereal, but with a totally different nutritional profile. Mm. And how did it come to me? Like, where'd it start? So I guess to go way back, my co-founder Gabby and I went to college together. We went to Brown uh, University. Both of him and I were always into food, though neither of us really thought that we would start a food business necessarily. I would say Gabby more than me was more involved in kind of like the startup club, startup scene at school. Mm -hmm. And he kind of always knew eventually he wanted to start his own business, but he's actually from Scotland. And so I think he was going to get a more stable job at mm -hmm. first and just like figure out his life in the US a bit uh, was his plan. I was actually going to go to grad school. I studied neuroscience and English. So mm -hmm. I was going to most likely eventually get a PhD or something in, in the neurosciences. And we were literally sitting around our kitchen table one day discussing the UN had just put out a big report on edible insects. So this kind of ties into our, the first business mm -hmm. that you mentioned, EXO. Gabby was big into CrossFit and paleo mm -hmm. at the time, which were these sort of big food and fitness movements. And he had actually in the shared house we had together been making his own protein bars. At the time, like RX bar didn't exist. There, there were it was really cliff bar. Like there wasn't a a good but simple pro high protein bar. And so sort of one thing led to another. We started spitballing. We thought, what if we put crickets in this protein bar formula that he had to almost Trojan horse people into tasting it, like realizing it tasted just like a really delicious protein bar. And but then realizing that actually there was this really sustainable protein source in it. So we uh, the, the idea there was cows are not sustainable. So yeah, the 30 second pitch for insect protein is essentially for an equivalent amount of protein, crickets and most bugs require far fewer resources than 
pigs or cows or chickens, they need much less water, much less feed, much less space. They don't produce methane. So there are all these reasons for, for an equivalent quality of protein that you can get. Obviously, you need millions of crickets, but you can dry them and mill them into a, a flour or powder, essentially, that then looks like any protein powder you'd buy. And once you put it in the bars, it, you really can't taste it. And it it does just function like a whey or soy protein, but has all these other added benefits. And really it was at that point, like the edible insect industry was, there was no industry. So it was more of like a bleeding edge, almost thought experiment and marketing experiment of can we convince people to do this and educate people about edible bug protein, but also just the protein industry and the agriculture industry and these drawbacks. And it sort of just took off uh, and had a life of its own. We, it, was, it was sort of the classic CPG startup of we made samples in our kitchen, brought them to like the farmer's markets, to gyms, sold them, got feedback. We moved down to New York and launched that business, which was called EXO. We ran that for a few years, but we really, we ran into both the supply side and the demand side had bottlenecks and we knew to get the price cheap enough to be competitive with something like a whey protein. We'd have to massively scale up these cricket farms and to get the demand to where we wanted it to be, to sort of be a viable venture-backed business. I would say like if we were happy to just have it be a lifestyle business and you know, be making and selling it ourselves, it would have been a totally viable thing, but we had raised money. And so Gabby and I sort of took a long, hard look in the mirror and realized we didn't want to be cricket farmers for <laughs> the next 20 years of our lives and raise more money to build out the farms. It was sort of a chicken and egg situation. Or that cricket and, cricket and, cricket egg, and yeah. egg situation, exactly. <laughs> so we ended up exiting that brand to a large cricket farming operation down huh. in Texas. And then Gabby and I were good friends. We knew we wanted to stay in the food industry, but we really wanted a totally different challenge in a way the opposite challenge, whereas EXO was really educating a very tiny core user base that was very passionate and then kind of like each next concentric circle out, bringing literally every additional consumer into the fold. We wanted a category and a product that was already probably in like 90% of people's homes and that people already had a really positive attachment to. There was no convincing necessary. We sort of had the hypothesis that if you could make a product like that, even much less innovative than obviously cricket protein was, it actually maybe could have a net larger impact just because of how many people you get the multiplier for. And we wanted a business and category that could scale to $100 million in sales within the first few years. And so we kind of had this short list of checkboxes as we were kind of thinking through what we wanted to do next. And we also were just literally walking grocery store aisles, looking to see, you know, what products we loved, but weren't filling our needs exactly where there already was a, a saturation of new brands there was this crop of new CBG companies that was started by people of our generation, kind of speaking to people of our generation, maybe even past the first wave of like organic and natural because like the Kashis of the world, the Annie's um, of the world, those are maybe even a little like 1.0 and might actually not speak anymore that much to our specific generation. But there was a whole wave from maybe 2013 to 2016 of 
really exciting new brands like Chobani, like reinventing yogurt and things like that. And so we walked through the grocery store. We realized we're lifelong eaters of cereal. Growing mm. up, I had literally a, a cabinet in my house of 10 different yeah. cereals. What's uh, your favorite? I would say I, I sort of like, maybe my mom spoiled me in this way, but I always had like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Tricks, yeah. Lucky Charms, yeah. Fruity Pebbles. And so it would kind of just like rotate between yeah. them. I would say in a way that gave me like a good palate to to develop our mm. flavors because I actually had a wide Yeah, you're like a cereal connoisseur. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Gabby yeah. coming from the UK, it's much more limited. They, right. they basically have Cocoa Puffs and Frosted Flakes in yeah. a sense. Miserable. <laughs> yeah, to- big loss <laughs> for the UK uh, cereal consumers. Yeah. But we also saw that in a lot of the large you know, what are called categories, but essentially products in the grocery store, there already are so many brands fighting over a relatively small ocean. So in, you know, milk alternatives, like there's a million and there were a million in 2018 when we were kind of in this position and, you know, soda, like sparkling waters is another huge one, but there's so many already there kind of duking it out. And Cereal is a massive category, 10, 11 billion in sales in the US every year. But there at at the time, especially was really no challenger brands at all. There were some brands that maybe appeared like challenger brands, but they were actually owned by Kellogg's and General Mills and Post. Like Kashi had been an upstart, but then got bought. And so we were sort of struck by this hole in the market. I think the sort of classic cereal companies had been able to ward off challengers because they sort of uniquely had maintained a positive brand association and like somehow avoided the backlash of like Coke and Pepsi and soda. Like, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, there was this big movement against soda. Like, mo- you know, schools don't stock it. Parents don't really buy it anymore for their kids because of the sugar. But cereal ha- has tons and tons of sugar, but people still feed it to their kids for breakfast. And I think it's just because the brands are so beloved. And so it was sort of like, I I think all these brands were satisfying enough to the consumer that there wasn't a need necessarily for something totally different, but they actually weren't really like checking a lot of boxes. So we felt there was a lot of white space and a lot of consumers lost to to the category that potentially could be brought back if you made something that uh, competed more with the Chabon Greek yogurts or the green juices or protein bars, like all these other new categories that had popped up to provide healthy breakfasts or healthy snacks. And we also just thought it'd be really fun to try and make a new cereal brand that resonated with us and consumers in the way that the classic brands do, but was clearly from the 21st century, essentially. Like a lot of these brands have are the original cereal brands from the 60s and seven, like our parents grew up, you know, with Frosted Flakes and Corn Flakes and stuff like that. So it's sort of odd, like no other category has the same legacy brands only from our parents' generation without uh, any updated new large brands. And so we set about to create Magic Spoon. Hmm. So... I remember reading, I think in 2013 about EXO, actually in the New Yorker, there was like a whole article about like insect protein. Yeah. And to me, the overriding idea there was sustainability, like new forms of protein. The trends are that 
as civilization gets richer, it eats more animal protein. And if you just plot that out in the ways that we currently get animal protein, it's a environmental disaster. And so we need alternatives. And the idea with that was, okay, we can, we can use this much more efficient format of animal protein, but what's the idea for Magic Spoon? The idea essentially is to bring a macronutrient-focused approach to the category, but also have a brand point of view that doesn't try and kind of like shame people or guilt people or honestly like sap all the fun out of right. things. So the way we thought about it is in other categories like protein bars or ice cream is a great example. You had this sort of like first wave of innovation that was like haagen or Lara bar or something where it sort of was like about the quality of the ingredients and the like small like list of ingredients right. and it's probably all certified organic. Yeah. And I would say, I would argue maybe Kashi was sort of mm. part of that in cereal um, where like on these cereal boxes, you know, it's like they're probably white mm. with like a photo of the like kind of like bland, mm. like mm. non-flavored piece of cereal. Maybe there's like a picture of like a farmer mm. on the back with like right. where they're getting right. their wheat from or something. Yeah. But then in ice cream, you had the second wave of innovation which was maybe like embodied by Halo Top or mm. Quest Bar in the protein bar aisle where they had all these really indulgent flavors. Mm. They weren't trying to lose the reason why people buy ice cream, which is that mm. they like chocolate chip cookie dough or whatever. But they really were using newer ingredients mm. and a macronutrient focused approach to kind of redefine what the product mm. was. So Halo Top famously, you know, they you could eat the whole pint and it was only a couple mm. hundred calories or something, whereas a scoop of another type of ice cream might be a couple hundred calories. And so we had seen that there wasn't that next wave in cereal. And in a way, even more than ice cream, cereal is sugar and carbs and wheat, like in mm. corn. Like it's it's sort of like the worst ingredients, quote unquote, you can get. And yet there was no one flipping it on its head. At the same time, all of these like health, quote unquote healthy brands were so boring. And like cereal is so fun. Like that, the, right. the reason why people love cereal is that right. they associate it with Saturday morning cartoons mm. and toys in the box mm. and, you know, these re really iconic characters like mm. Tony the Tiger and the Fruit Loops mm. Toucan and things like that. And so we felt like if we could marry those things together and create a product that was essentially like the halo top of cereal from a product point of view, but mm. so still had the same fun flavors, you know, fruity cinnamon toast, waffles and cookies mm. and cream, things like that, but was actually healthy and had the, the branding and feel of like a joyful, mm. colorful, classic cereal mm. that there was just no one doing that. And so that was the original idea of make a product that's healthier than the quote unquote healthy cereals but that felt like a classic cereal brand, mm. basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like new school healthy, right? It's like, we can, it can be fun and healthy and these are not inherently trade-offs. We don't have to be miserable and, and healthy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Is the customer kids or is it adults or is it both? So our customers are adults. We don't advertise the kids. Huh. We don't 
we didn't formulate it for kids. I think if we were formulating for kids, we'd probably lower the protein slightly. And most cereals, because they are targeted at kids, are enriched with vitamins and minerals. And so we would probably do that too. We just felt like, you know, to be totally honest, Gabby and I don't have kids. Mm. And at the time we were in our late 20s, now we're in our early 30s. We just felt like we weren't best positioned Mm. to try on the marketing side and make a product that was targeted at kids. Mm. We don't buy for kids. We don't know what Mm. necessarily kids want or asking for. Likewise, I think in a way, kids, well, kids definitely don't care about their health. And I think parents in a way like are thinking less about macronutrients as it relates to their kids, potentially at least a couple of years ago than they are for themselves. And so we felt like the value proposition of, you know, super low in carbs, super high in protein um, and low in sugar, which, and I think the sugar is something people that is relevant to kids, but was most resonant for adults shopping for themselves. Um, That's not to say we have a lot of customers that are parents and do buy it and feed it to their kids. And we get a lot of anecdotal emails and reviews saying, essentially like my kids were tricked into Mm. thinking that this was like another one of their Mm. junk cereals, but I'm so happy Mm. because like, I know it's not. And so I think in a way that's the goal and we're always learning from those things and starting to think about how we might integrate that more. But definitely our, our target customer is probably, I would say 25 to 45 on average. Mm. When you were looking at the market, did you have a sense for what percentage of the existing cereal market was adults versus kids? It's very hard to try and back into that because kids don't ever answer those right. surveys. So you're trying to like proxy assume based on the, essentially the purchaser is not the consumer. And right. so it's hard to figure out what the split is. So we never really dove too deeply into that. I mean, you can tell when you walk into the grocery store or past the cereal aisle, the best-selling cereals are always the ones at child eye height mm. because that's the mm. the best spot that moves the quickest. And so brands will always try and like convince stores to give them that spot. And that's because the assumption is mm. like when kids are walking down the aisle, they see that mm. and they are basically like tugging at their parents' shirt mm. saying like, can we buy this? Or if the parents are like, go choose mm. one that's what they will go do. Next is at adult eye level. <laughs> and then the rest is is all the same. So it's definitely a big motivator for purchase and drives a lot of sales at the grocery store. But I don't have a sense of, yeah. of what the split is. Yeah, it's interesting though, because it sounds like you guys did a pretty like market-oriented analysis on starting the business, which is like, let's look at the grocery store. Let's think about what we can do in a new school way. That's a big category. But in a way, like, it's a subset of the market, right? I'm curious how you thought about that because to me, adult cereal is almost like, you're not just doing like a new school cereal, you're doing a new school cereal for adults. So are you replacing cereal that adults are eating or are you bringing cereal to adults who remember it fondly but just don't eat cereal day to day or or both? It's a good question and I think it's changing over time. Yeah. I think when we first launched, the vast majority of our customers were not active mm. cereal eaters. They, they probably had been at one time. And that was the benefit we had was that like we were sort of tapping into this mm. well of positive associations mm. that people had already. But 
they left the category because they had realized that basically, you know, it's 30 grams of sugar or something and and corn. And I think our generation is much more aware of of what they're eating. And there's so many other options now. So, Mm. you know, between intermittent fasting where like people just don't eat breakfast, protein bars on the go, bulletproof coffee, which like had a bunch of protein in it. Mm. People drink in the mornings. Greek yogurt and other things like overnight oats. There's just so many Mm. sort of quote unquote higher quality quick breakfasts. Mm. And so we found a lot of our customers were eating those things and we were reintroducing cereal into their diets and purchasing habits as we've scaled and kind of widened our pool of, of customers. Definitely now we see a lot more almost like hybrid users where they will have a box of Lucky Charms for, you know, dessert or Mm. like when they're, when they're feeling like they don't care when they're (laughs) stoned and then they'll have a box of Magic Spoon, which is like what they Mm. eat for breakfast basically. Or, you know, we, we see a lot, and this is true of regular cereal too, but a big snacking use case where like you're maybe more okay with it, not like fully filling you up because it's meant to just tide you over, but people feel a lot better about using Magic Spoon in that situation than like a Fruity Pebbles or something. And sort of to follow that track out, I, I assume as we scale again into more of these like mainstream retailers where by definition you have to be in the cereal aisle to find mm-hmm. us because that's where we're merchandise. So you by definition are an existing cereal consumer. We will be integrating or, or you know, stealing market share maybe from those other classic cereals. Whereas at the beginning when we were entirely e-commerce and really targeting people with specific interests or views or, you know, bought other products similar to ours, we could find the people that weren't shopping for cereal. Mm. So how's it going? Like, how's the business going? It's, it's going great. We recently launched into about 7,000 grocery stores. Wow. Doors. So we launched with Target as our first retail partner last June. And now we're in Sprouts and Walmart, Kroger, uh, Albertsons and Safeway. And I think it's a big moment for the business because we started entirely direct to consumer, mostly because that was what Gabby and I knew. And uh, EXO was mostly direct to consumer. We were sort of still maybe in the tail end of the kind of direct to consumer heyday before all the Apple iOS changes, which we could talk about. I don't know if other people have talked about that on this podcast, but we're transitioning from entire direct-to-consumer business to a fully omni-channel business. Uh, And there really is a ton of differences in how each of those sales channels are run. And so integrating physical sales with growth marketing, integrating, you know, warehousing logistics with direct-to-consumer, 3PL, pick-and-pack operations, integrating the way even invoices and chargebacks are processed via Shopify payments, which come in every day as the orders are, are placed. It's just a totally different mindset and, and approach. And so we've really had to, in real time, sort of as the plane is flying, like rebuild the plane. And it's been really exciting. And luckily, everything's gone super well so far. And because we've had a few years of really building up this core consumer awareness, we're seeing really positive buying numbers from the retailers, which I think is a testament to the work 
that the existing team has done for the past couple of years. And still to the strength of direct-to-consumer as a model, I think there's a lot of doom and gloom right now about it as a, as a in terms of how viable it is. But it really provided a good launch pad for us as we now push out into a lot of these national retailers. Yeah. How did you learn the the national retail game? Like, did you bring on someone to your team who had experience with it? Like you said, it's a totally different model. So how did you learn it? We've been in the industry for a while. So we kind of always resisted physical retail, but since 2013, Gabby and I have been going to all the retail trade shows. We've had friends that started brands that were more traditional retail. And we we had relationship with some buyers and things like that from our exo days where we'd be chatting to them about launching. And some we did, some we didn't. But we we always, I would say, we could speak the language, but we didn't have the deep domain expertise of having done it before. So definitely for the past year, I would say Gabby and myself, we just reach out to people in the industry, ask them to get on the phone with us for 30 minutes, an hour, pick their brain, you know, ask them how they would launch a direct-to-consumer brand into retail, what retailers they'd launch with, what retailers they wouldn't, how they would stagger a three-year rollout. And just people are super generous with their time and there's no right answer to any of this stuff. So it's more just trying to hear as many perspectives as possible and then integrating that together, like with all the knowledge we have about our specific business, and then just trying to place the highest probability bet, Mm. essentially, of what we think is going to lead to success. We hired a really great head of sales who has a lot of experience in the industry. We've hired uh, a whole new sales operations team. We've beefed up our logistics team. The sales team now is four or five people. So we've definitely hired a lot of headcount to help with this whole other channel. There definitely is some trial and error and we're trying to like learn to ex- embrace that and be okay with it because I think luckily there are very few mistakes. And this is honestly true, I think, in my experience in general across both companies. There are very few mistakes that are truly irreversible. And so you make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time and you know that some amount of those decisions will turn out to be wrong and you'll you'll try and roll them back as best you can. Yeah. Getting into 7,000 doors, as someone who you know, only has lay person's experience or knowledge of your category, that seems like incredible. And it seems like in, in the business that you're in, distribution or the number of doors that you're in is the bottleneck on the business. Like at the end of the day, most volume in your category is driven through grocery stores and supermarkets. And so the challenge is like, how do you get in those places? How did you do it? We were really lucky because we had this existing large customer base Mm. from the couple of years we were e-commerce only, like to the order of millions of customers. And and so these Mm. retailers were already hearing about us from our customers where they would be going into the stores and asking about Mm. Magic Spoon and asking, you know, why they don't stock Magic Spoon. And so they were aware of us from that point of view. And also, you know, a lot of these buyers, it's their job to kind of Right. within their categories, track what's going on. And there really was no innovation in the cereal aisle before we launched. Uh, now, in the, there are a few other companies as well that are sort of trying to be this new school approach. And uh, the buyers are really, in a way, want to do right by the, their customers in their aisle. And so when they see this innovation, they want to to stock it, essentially. And so we'd been getting a lot of inbound mm. from them and a lot of interest 
And we were in a fortunate position where when we were ready to go to retail on our terms, essentially, once we felt like our supply mm. chain was scaled up, once we felt like our product was where we wanted to be, it's much harder to mm. change all of that stuff once you're in retail because it's such a long supply chain. Mm. The timelines are take maybe six months to like make a mm. change and float all the way through. Whereas on our website, if we wanted to tweak the amount of monk fruit in our product mm. or change the color slightly of mm. our, you know, red fruity loop, mm-hmm. we could just do that. And then within a month or two, we'd be getting real-time feedback from our customers. And so we wanted to wait until we were really confident we were going to be successful in retail. And when we when we kind of arrived at that moment, we called up a lot of these buyers and they were super excited that we were ready. We were super excited to partner with them. And so we were able to launch at a lar- much larger scale, to your point, than than most brands ever can. It is really unusual and unheard of to launch so quickly from nothing. But because we already had this large e-commerce business, we were already operating at the scale that mm-hmm. could support you know, a nationwide 7,000-door launch. Whereas brands that are building their business via the retail channel... You just you can't go zero to seven thousand overnight. It mm. just takes time to scale up your manufacturing, make sure your pallets are the right size, making sure your price pack architecture mm. makes sense, like all these things that we'd already figured out because we'd already been in market for a few years. So we really had a big advantage in, in that respect. That's super interesting. Also, it sounds like in a way a new playbook for D to C, at least in, in the CPG market, which is like you use direct-to-consumer to build a brand, build awareness, prove out the supply chain and product, and then you have like a, a baseline of support that then pulls in demand from retailers effectively. Yep. Do you think that that's possible in your category uniquely, or do you think other categories lend themselves to both? Like It seems to me like your business, you were able to build a pretty nice business just with D2C. And now you can turbocharge it. But it seems like some businesses really only work in retail, physical retail, and maybe some only work in direct-to-consumer. Like, how do you think about that? It's a great question. I think in 2023 today, it would be, I think, pretty difficult to replicate our success on the e-commerce side. Like, like even for us, like if we were to be launching Magic Spoon now, I'm, I'm not sure if we could build it to the same scale and the same speed that we did. There's just been so many changes in that channel and across the advertising platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, et cetera. I mean, TikTok now is sort of becoming an advertising channel, but it didn't even exist at the time, really. And it's just gotten so much more expensive. The CACs are are so much higher that if you don't have a high-priced product or really a you know, sort of like very recurring subscription product, which we actually do. We have we have many thousands of subscribers, but ultimately, you know, people say our product's expensive and it is compared to Honey Nut Cheerios or something, but even a $40 a month product, I would say you, you, you need a lot of years to make back what some CACs are today. And so I'm not sure if, a truly direct-to-consumer only business could be built with a CPG product 
given the price points, mm. maybe, you know, high-end skincare or something like that. Mm. But I think the future is omnichannel where you can drive that flywheel of spending to acquire a customer online, but then knowing that that same customer, like maybe you offer a, a, a bunch of limited flavors on your website that you can only get there. And so they'll, they'll come back and buy those flavors every so often, but they also already are shopping at Target or, or Walmart or right. whatever, Sprouts. And so they will, you know, when they're there, throw a box of your cereal in their cart because they know they like it. And so it's challenging because there's no way to attribute right. your ad spend to that box in the cart in a sense. So you have to make a, some kind of assumptions of like a halo spillover effect. But even with reasonable assumptions, you can, you can definitely see that the math adds up in a way that it may not if you're purely only driving people to your own website. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, the implications of the changes to the digital ad market and the how they cascade. Imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder. You'd be like, what kind of podcast is this? We know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event. So of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend. And we'll see you out there. You have a co-founder. How do you kind of divide and conquer? What's the division of labor? Gabby and I are very similar personality types. Mm. I think it's why we're good co-founders. We were speaking to some students a couple of weeks ago and somebody also asked the question, like, how do you know a good co-founder? And I think there's, there's advice out there that is... I feel pretty untrue, which is find someone who's very different than you and maybe complements your mm. skill set. So if you're a creative designer, find somebody who's like an analytical finance person or something. Maybe it's like the classic mm. business advice, but I actually think finding somebody who is thinks about problems and the world in a very similar way to you is more likely to be successful because Ultimately, you can hire for specific skill sets that you need, whether it's design or finance, et cetera. But so much of running a business over many years, especially, is in, you know, inbounding new problems and quickly trying to react to them. And you know, with, a, with a limited set of information, figuring out what makes the most sense. And so somebody who arrives at the same conclusions as you mm. so much so that you don't both need to be involved mm. in every decision, but like can trust that mm. you'd 
agree with the decision they were making, mm-hmm. I think is much more important and is not likely to be true if you know you're coming at things mm-hmm. from totally different perspectives. So we're we're pretty similar. We at the beginning of EXO essentially literally sat down, made a list of all the various functions of running a business essentially, and just, you know, had a conversation of like, how much do you enjoy doing this thing? How much do you not enjoy doing that thing? Mm. Sorted them into columns essentially and just came to the conclusions that like broadly thematically similar things like sales and marketing and fundraising, investor relations, Gabby enjoyed doing more and things like product development, like manufacturing, things more having to do Mm. with like the actual product we were making, I enjoyed doing more. And so we split the business up that way, essentially where I do operations, finance, product, and Mm. he does sales and marketing. When we're fundraising, we both meet all the investors, have great relationships with them, but he does more of the day-to-day investor Mm. relationships, I would say. And it's just, we, we, that's how we've always done it since then and how we still do it today. And so tell me a little bit about manufacturing. I'm curious how you make the product and also how you scale production, you know, because I'd imagine that that's ramping very quickly. That was one of the biggest challenges, actually. And I think one of the main reasons why you didn't see uh, a bunch of startups mm-hmm. in the serial space, there just isn't a way to make it on a small scale in the way you can make a protein bar or granola or mm. lots of other products that people test out. In the old days, it used to be like you rent a commercial kitchen space mm. for a day a week and make right. it yourself and then right. package it. You can't do that with cereal. Because the machine, you need machining. It's, it's huge, you know, multi-story mm. machines, super high. So basically it's super high pressure that mm. forces right. a dough for all intents and purposes through a little hole that's shaped in a certain way. So, huh. you know, if you're trying to make a loop, it's shaped like a loop. If you're trying to make a star, it's shaped like a star. It's almost like, I don't know if you remember like those sort of Play-Doh things where you could kind of yeah. like force Play-Doh through yeah. a little tube a mold, and it would, yeah, yeah a mold uh, on a very large scale. And so there's just no way to replicate it. Those machines, like they burn through hundreds of thousands of pounds of ingredients an hour because they just operate at such a large scale. So it's really expensive. Like you can't, you can't just start it up for 30 minutes and make, you know, even like 20,000 pounds or something. You got to run it for a whole shift, eight hours. Mm. And a lot of companies like don't have the capital or the conviction that there's, you know, that they'll be able to sell all that product to, to really take the bet. A lot of the manufacturers like don't trust that these little startups that haven't launched yet, like will basically be good for it if they give a production mm. slot to them versus an existing large cereal company. So there's a lot of barriers against new entrants into the space. Luckily, because we were sort of rethinking the product, our product looks like a loop, but it it essentially has no relationship hmm. to classic cereal from a formulation point of view. Like it's, our product is protein powder in the shape of a loop. Hmm. And instead so, of like cornmeal or something? Instead of corn flour, yeah. wheat, uh, um, and it functions very differently. So the, the same manufacturer that might have a lot of experience putting like ce- literal cereal grains through the shapes, it's actually not very transferable at all to put huh. dairy protein through the same machine. We went to the protein 
supplier, protein powder suppliers at the at the very beginning and worked with them to huh. help us create the shape. Since then, we've now started working maybe with, you know, some more traditional quote unquote cereal manufacturers, but it was a lot of trial and error to try and make something that looked like cereal, but actually mm. had nothing to do with cereal. It was really, it was very challenging at the beginning. And we don't, you know, we use allulose, which is, it functions largely like sugar, but not entirely. And, and it was a new ingredient. A lot of these manufacturers had never heard of, and they're very used to, right, you know, rightfully running similar formulas. Mm. A manufacturing business, like your goal is to run the same formula for as long as you can, mm. essentially. Like if you could keep a machine running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, running the same exact flavor, mm. that's where you're making the most mm. money, essentially, because mm. you're it's it's the most efficient. So anytime you're changing a flavor, anytime you're changing an ingredient, anytime you're running a formula that is more finicky, uh, runs slower on the machine like ours does versus like a an oat or corn-based cereal. There's a lot of convincing you have to do and just a lot more R&D you have to do. Hmm. So how did you guys come up with the initial formula? Like the idea of using whey protein that's shaped like an O with allulose makes sense in retrospect, but ha- like it's not obvious. It's not obvious. We And we got, you know, it was maybe sort of a classic startup thing. Like we got told that we were crazy a lot at the beginning. A lot of these manufacturers basically said, we can't get it nearly as high in protein as you want. We we couldn't ever get it to be the price you needed to be. And you know, our pricing is super premium. We saw it for a 975 a box, which is at this point probably double, I would say, what a regular cereal costs now that a lot of the cereal has in with inflation actually gone up in price. We've we've managed to keep our price steady, but what we always say is like, it's premium, yeah, but one, it's maybe $2 more than like your single Starbucks latte that everyone, or, you know, your cold brew, especially in New York, that nobody really thinks twice about buying every day. And there's five servings in a box. If you break that down on a per serving basis, it's cheaper than a protein bar. Yeah. And so it's sort of just the the anchoring effect people have for like what cereal should cost, quote unquote. But it's actually, I mean, we feel like pretty good value for the, for the money. And so, but we knew we couldn't have it be even more expensive right. than like $10 a box. So we were told by a lot of people, there's just no way you could make it happen. We were also told that they could get us something, but it, w- it could never be as big or as airy as mm. the loop shape that we were going for. Like we were told that they could make us like a pellet, like a little right. pellet basically. Right. And we just, we knew like if we tried to serve people like something that looked like dog food essentially and was way more expensive and, you know, quite frankly, doesn't taste 100% as good as classic cereal that it just wouldn't work. So we went to a ton of trade shows. We talked to a lot of people in the industry. Eventually we found a few partners that were willing to take a bet on us and worked with them. They, They were mostly ingredient suppliers actually, did a lot of trials. You can. There are um, smaller scale equipment, sort of replicas that you can run trials on. They could never produce actual sellable product, but you can kind of like dial in and prove out formulas. So we did a lot of trialing. It took us about a year to get the formula down. Hmm. Um, and honestly, I made the the initial formulas, Gabby and I, in, in my kitchen in in hmm. Brooklyn. Once we had the actual cereal itself uncoated, unflavored, then like the actual flavoring and seasonings, et cetera, spices and stuff, 
I just freestyled in my kitchen, mm. essentially. We got bought a little uh, popcorn coater from Amazon that I think is meant for butter and seasoning and just did it that way and then mm. scaled it up. If in the traditional cereal world, you need these really big, expensive machines that are using a lot of ingredients, how do you do it for your product? It's the same process essentially, but the the settings are totally different. So the temperature the machine has to be at, the speed you have mm-hmm. to run the cutting blades at, the amount of water that you mix into the dough, it's all just totally different. It's much more particular. The higher the protein content, and especially dairy, because it's sort of like when you're cooking at home. I don't know if you ever like cooked milk on your stove, but there's a very fine line from when it's hot to when it's burnt. And when it, you know, it forms that sort of like film on top when it gets too hot. And, and all that happens in a similar way when you're putting it under temperature and high pressure. There's a very fine line from when it tastes great and is still white to when it's like hard and burned. So you have to be really careful when you're running it in the in a way you don't have to. Like if you if you run wheat or corn through it, like you can just in a way sort of set it and forget it. Hmm. So these protein whey protein product manufacturers, did they have to buy these machines to to make this product they, for you? <laughs> we ha- oftentimes had to by kind of like modification parts that were better suited for the dairy proteins. To be honest, we we tried to work with probably maybe four or five factories that just we could never get the machines to work and produce mm. the the product in a way that we were happy with. So it's really in a way more an art than a science, funnily enough. Like even though it's these huge large scale machines that if they're not it's not new technology. In a way like you walk in, it's it's like a factory floor. It's very, very, there's a lot of metal and yeah. it's, it's old school, but it's, it takes like a very skilled operator and honestly a little bit of luck and the exact right ingredients at the exact right temperature. Mm. And even then sometimes just based on how old the machine is mm. or, uh, or how long the neck is for some reason, like, or, or how humid it is in the factory, which is something mm. like, we didn't even quite think about it at the beginning. So, you know, if you're at a factory in California versus Illinois versus like Tampa, Florida, like that's going to totally change the right. settings that you have to run it on. And you're trying to, you're, the goal is obviously to have the end product be indistinguishable so that you could sell all of it at the same time without customers writing and being like, this fruity tastes totally different from the fruity mm-hmm. I bought last time. And so it's just, it's really, it's really difficult to figure out. And yeah, we had to buy a bunch of parts. We had to do a bunch of trials and then a lot of it just, yeah, never worked. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. It it definitely, it's, it's much more challenging than, than I thought it would be at the outset. And then protein bars were, for example, in our last business, it's called extrusion is the kind mm. of, is the name for the actual right. process. And it's just known to be, really difficult, which we didn't even, maybe this again is sort of like an entrepreneur mindset. Like we, yeah. we had this sort of beginner's mind. Like we were just like, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like, yeah. th- why can't you just like pack it full of protein and have it taste almost as good? Like we, you know, we don't believe you when you say that you can't do that. And I think it was just through like constantly working with these manufacturers, we got it to a place that I would say is 80% as close to 
the old school cereals. Yeah. You know, our realistic, we'd like to be at 90%. We'd like to be at 100% fidelity, but there's always a trade-off when you're upgrading the ingredients, changing the nutritionals. And we just, our goal was basically to, to get the flavor and texture to a place where that trade-off was an easy one, essentially. Like it was worth that 20% of taste to get what we feel is like, you know, maybe 200% as good ingredients mm. and nutrition. Yeah, it's interesting because as you were talking about the pellets, I was thinking, you know, even the O's, whether it's Magic Spoon or Fruit Loops, they still don't look that good. Like at the end of the day, the packaging, the brand around the totally. product. Totally, and, I, I, you know, in your head, yeah. when you think of a Fruit Loop or a Cheerio or, you know, Captain Crunch or whatever, like in your head, there are these like perfect circles, yeah. like bright colors, but then, yeah, and on the box, you know, they're probably like, I think you're probably technically not allowed to do this, but Photoshopped yeah. and like, or they at least choose the very best yeah. pieces. I mean, we do, everyone does yeah. that. But um, when you pour out a box, like half of them are broken, like yeah. the colors are all spotty. And so, yeah, I mean, you're always sort of the harshest critic of, of your own product, I think. It, it's true. It's even existing cereals are are not perfect by any yeah. means. And also though, I think you want to be convinced, right? Like as a consumer, it needs to be 80% good enough. Like if it were a pellet, even though the O is like not what it looks like on the box, it's passable, it's convincing enough. And you kind of want to believe, you want to believe that it looks like the thing on the box. So I just think it needs to be like convincing enough. Yeah, totally agree. You know, so for you, like what's the hardest part? The hardest part of yeah, like being in, you're, you've been an entrepreneur <laughs> for ten years now. I'm curious for you now what the hardest part is, but also just in the bigger picture. You know, different entrepreneurs have different hardest parts. It's a good question. I think it. I think it definitely has changed over time. At the beginning, the hardest part was, and we, and we've been very lucky at Magic Spoon because we had a lot of relationships with investors from our last business that really you know, we, mm. we know and love and they were like, we'll back you again. Basically we told them about our idea for the cereal. We didn't have a brand. We didn't have a formula. We didn't have anything. It was literally a phone call, I think in an email. And they kind of wrote us the, I guess pre it's called pre-seed these days, capital to get it up and running. And then we really have raised from investors that we know and, and like the whole way through and our product market fit was there from the beginning. And so the, that part, which I think is, you know, always in a way like existential for entrepreneurs and hanging over you of like, do I have enough cash to run the business? Like, where is my next fundraise going to come from? We were in a fortunate position where that wasn't really an issue that weighed on us a lot. For us, we almost had the opposite problem in the early days and actually kind of last year in the supply chain crisis of, can we make enough right. fast enough? which was that, that other challenge that I was speaking about before, like that we didn't have at Exo. So we were excited by it and that's what we were looking for. And I think it was really just in the early days, heads down, like how do we make enough? How do we keep scaling? What's the, you know, what's the next need that we can try and anticipate for our team? Mm. Um, and it was really just like super tactical because you're really close to the ground. You can really iterate quickly. You can make changes. And like I said, I think the scale is small enough that there's really no problem that's like do or die in a sense. 
Now we're about 55 people. We're in 7,000 stores. I can feel the business changing to be in a sense more like executional. It's less of like, is our product good enough? You know, what's the next like channel that we go to and more, how do we improve our margin? Like how do we eke out the next flavor and the next five flavors? What's the end result of the business five, 10 years from now? And really like trying to be that like strategic visionary leader Mm -hmm. that like 55 people are looking to you to set the direction. It is a new challenge for Gabby and I because everybody had their marching orders at the beginning. There was so much to do and it was clear. It's like we're a new business, you know, we're trying to, I'm making up numbers, but we're trying to go from 5 million in revenue to 10 million to 15 to 20 to 50 or whatever. Like it was like, okay, we're just trying to, we're trying to grow this thing. Now the teams are big, like we're omni-channel, like, you know, we're looking at new product categories. It's, and so there's, it's just much more ambiguous and people are looking to us as the founders to really set the tone, set the goals, set the vision. You have to like really align people more on a, a very simple, cohesive plan mm. that's not just, you know, revenue targets basically. Mm. And that's been the hardest part, I think, for us to, mm. to really try and grow into those roles. So what is that vision? Like what's the future look like five, 10 years out? I think, yeah, I'd be lying if I said like we had the answers. It's definitely still work in progress. We are really excited by trying to take what we feel has resonated most with our current product and continuing to expand that. So what we feel is maybe the core of Magic Spoon is these nostalgic childhood classics that are upgraded for modern consumers. And I think with that lens, like there's a lot of other products that could flow through that platform. I think we're also a breakfast brand. And so mm. there's a lot of other products also Pop-tarts. that are adjacent. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah Pop-Tarts would be a great one. I mean, we're looking at just a bunch of different things. Mm. The challenge also though, to my prior answer is when, when you're 50, 60 people, as you know, you have to be really careful about like the new projects you introduce. You can't just work on everything all mm. at once. And staying focused in a way is mm. really important. And we're trying to not chase kind of like the shiny thing that mm. we happen to think might be a fun idea to work on when we have 55 people that we have to like orient mm. in a direction. And it's harder to turn a cruise ship than a little speedboat. And mm. by no means are we a cruise ship mm. yet, but even even at our size, we want to be very careful. I mean, I think there's, we're so focused on rolling the cereal out now to these retailers. We're in the earliest stages of what to most CPG brands is like their only channel. Like in a way, we're the newest CPG startup. Mm. We could be just launching to our first stores. And I think there's so much runway on the existing product we have. And we do have such good product market fit on that. Our, our current thinking is almost like, let's just like focus on that, mm. not, not mess it up, not get distracted, really execute on that rollout. And then if we feel like our customers are really pulling us into other categories, we might follow them there, but we don't have any current plans mm. to, to distract ourselves at the moment. Yeah. As you look to the future, I'm curious, 
it's clear to me that you guys have your finger on the zeitgeist of culture, at least when it comes to food, nutrition, and how that integrates with pop culture. What does the future look like in your mind? Like where, where do you think things are going? It's a good question. I think five, I mean, maybe 10 years ago at this point, that would have been a lot easier to answer mm. in the food industry. There were so many new brands that had so much energy popping up around them, pulling from other cultures around the world, like other, you know, coconut water, for example, the whole supply chain mm. had to be built in South mm. America, mm. Southeast Asia. There were multiple billion dollar brands that were, were literally only selling coconut water. And there were there was many of those things that like huge industries, huge mm. brands could be built on just finding something that American consumers never really had before or reinventing something like Chobani did. I think now, both because direct-to-consumer digital advertising is a lot harder and also just because the food industry is so much more saturated with those brands, it's a lot harder to come up with something truly innovative that really can catch fire. Mm. And I think the next wave of brands in a sense, will be more mainstream than ever. And what mm. I mean by that is, I think we're past the point where throwing chia seeds in something like mm. is reason enough to exist. And you could exist by being in Whole Foods for a couple of years, like using that as a platform to then go to, you know, the next mainstream competitor and maybe eventually getting to like a Target or a Costco and Walmart being even way too kind of mm. mass consumer. I think now... In a way, it's easier than ever to to launch into that Walmart. Mm. Like Walmart knows they need to be much more innovative. They're really trying at the mm. at the senior level to be good partners to newer brands like that. But at the same time, there's there's just not this like consumer class that could really, I think, nurture a small little natural brand. So I think what you're gonna see is people going after these big categories. Sir Kensington's like is that's a good example. Like ketchup is something that's so mainstream. Mm. You could just make it slightly better, you know, mm. use good tomatoes and like not corn syrup and things like that mm. and just launch it big to a big mainstream group of people. I think that's where you're going to see the next wave mm. of consumer brands, if that makes sense. It makes sense from a business perspective that it's almost like going from the minors to the major leagues and like these sort of millennial brands are now having their mainstream moment or bringing that millennial quote unquote sensibility to the mainstream. And there's like market forces at play, like the ad market for that, but also it's just a growing up of, of it and a recognition by the incumbents that they need a bit of this mm -hmm. vibe. I also think there's interestingly like that feeling in aesthetics in general, like in a way, I feel like in the early 2010s, there was something really cool about wearing a brand that no one knew about. And I feel like we're back to, uh, in a way, like uh, basics in a sense. Totally. Like, yeah, luxury has just lost mm -hmm. a lot of its appeal. Mm -hmm. Maybe because a lot of those brands have just in the end been shown to like not be all that they were cracked mm -hmm. up to be. And or this movement, even you know, to like New Balance and right. like Solomon's becoming Norcore, like yeah. the cool sneakers. Totally. Like, there's just less interest in these like high end, like, yeah. you know, I'm showing off how expensive my mm. car is or watches or whatever, and more like democratized 
branding and products. And I think you're seeing that in food as well. It's interesting. I, I, I hadn't made that connection really in terms of like the badge of honor moving from something super elitist to something super democratic. But that, that is the trend that I'm seeing too. I just hadn't connected it as, as such. Yeah, I also think even just to me, like the idea of going back to cereal, like as a mid-30s person, I, I feel like in the 2010s, that wasn't as cool of an idea as it is today. Like there's something where like post-elite, if that makes sense. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, even in politics, like yeah. the green juice has become like an insult that right. politicians like want to get away from. I think there was a sense, yeah, in the maybe like the Obama years mm. that like these like cool niche high-end things like signified a progressiveness. Mm. Um, and now I think right. people just right. realize like you don't need brands to like co-opt the language of sustainability or something to assess whether like they actually mm. are, are speaking to you and people are, consumers are just a lot smarter now, I think. Right. And, and there's been this wave of boom and busts of these, these smaller, like high priced niche brands uh, and politicians and all these, and all these things. And I think there's, an, there's still an opportunity to capture the hearts and minds mm. of consumers that do care about the underlying causes of health and wellness or sustainability or positive labor practices. So I think the motivations, the long-term trends are still there. I just think how you position the mm. brand, it's less of like an exclusionary, mm. you know, velvet rope. We're going to like bottleneck the wait list to, mm. for you to like get access to this and more. Um, we're going to launch, like try it out. Like we want all the feedback and we want to reach as many people as possible to do the most good. Essentially, mm. I think the tone has changed a mm. lot. Cool. All right. Well, I think uh, we'll call it there. And, you know, Greg, thanks for joining. Anything yeah, else you so want to No, wanna I add? think we, we covered it all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.